Hello and welcome to a specially extended Christmas edition of Hong Kong Heritage, where later in the program I'll be talking tales of Christmas past with the founder of Hong Kong history website Grulo.com, that's David Bellis, plus the diary of a member of a motor torpedo boat unit that thundered out of Aberdeen on the evening of the surrender of Hong Kong 80 years ago on the 25th of December 1941 and made its way to the mainland with the Chinese Nationalist Admiral Chan Chak on board. So David will be joining me later in the programme. But first, another escape. This is a story of New Zealander and Lieutenant Commander Ralph Goodwin, who was a part of the same motor torpedo boat group, but was injured in the Battle of Hong Kong, became a prisoner of war here and escaped from Sham Shui Po camp in July 1944. Long-time Hong Konger and retired surveyor Gordon Anderson and antiquarian and cartography expert Jonathan Wattis tell me about his escape. Well, yes, I arrived in Hong Kong in 1966 to work with the PWD and uh, accommodation was always hard to find. So I was living in a leave flat, as they called them then. The owner was away and he had a beautiful library and eventually I got round to looking at some of the books in the library and I found this book, Hong Kong Escape. Uh, written by Ralph Burton Goodwin. And uh, I hadn't heard this guy, then I suddenly realised he was a New Zealander. I'm, I'm a New Zealander. So I had to read the book. I was enthralled. I just read it from cover to cover there. So this is a man who decides to escape from Hong Kong from prisoner of war camp in 1944. Yes, Ralph Goodwin. And he had enough. I mean, he was taken, he was a prisoner, of course, from day one and spent several years in different prisoner of war camps. And he participated in anti-Japanese tactics throughout that time. He, he took a risk because they were actually sending messages out to the BAAG group. So the British Army Aid Group. So that was the group that was working out of the mainland in order to sabotage yes. the, the Japanese occupation here. Yes, as Colonel Wright, who had escaped earlier, was heading that up at that time. So they were busy sending out these messages and taking a lot of risk. And he, he worked quite actively on that, but he moved from one camp to another, several camps, about three or four camps. But then when he got to Sham Shui Po, he realised that, uh, that this was his chance. He could get across the water and up the hills and he, he could escape. But uh, that's what gave him the idea anyway. He said this is the best opportunity he had. So, Gordon Andressen, you find this book in the library where you're staying in a flat in 1967. So that was what first tempted you into the life of Ralph Burton Goodwin. So this uh, incredible story of an escape from Hong Kong in 1944. And as we'll be discovering today, through his own account... Uh, which is then published through maps that he then shows his escape on, that this is a guy who has, is undernourished. He's basically already been a prisoner for two to three years by the time he's escaping, so quite an accomplishment. We're at What is Fine Art here at the bottom of Old Bailey Street on the corner with Hollywood Road, talking to Jonathan Wattis as well at the same time as Gordon about the story of Ralph Burton Goodwin. What a story, because... This actually takes us back to Christmas Day, 1941, initially. So, Gordon Anderson, can you tell me first of all about Ralph Burton Goodwin during the Battle of Hong Kong? What's he involved with? What's his military involvement here? Yes, he was a member, crew member of one of the MTBs operating in Hong Kong. So, a mo motor torpedo. So, was he Royal Navy? Uh, he was Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. I think those are the initials after his name there. A Royal New Zealand Naval Volunteer Reserve. So he'd been a reservist, 
And at the beginning of the war, he went across to Europe. He volunteered straight away and went off and joined the Royal Navy fleet in the Mediterranean, I think it was. Quite a bit of war experience before going out to Singapore. So, and from Singapore, he went on to Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, he was with the MTBs, as I said. There was about, I think, seven or eight of them originally. And this is about two months before the war started or the Japanese started attacking here. So when you say the MTB boat, so, so there was a whole division or section that was motor torpedo boats. So these are small, mobile vessels. They're, they're small, powerful boats, well-equipped. And, and they're like the uh, German e-boats, aren't they? Oh, that type, of, that type of thing, but very, very noisy. The engines on them were very, very powerful and very noisy. But he was unfortunately wounded in action when the Japanese did attack Hong Kong. And that put him into hospital, of course, about two weeks before Christmas. So, he, yeah, it's a shrapnel injury, isn't it? Yes, the shrapnel uh, it might have hit both legs, but it certainly damaged the right leg very badly. And he was laid up in hospital, Queen Mary Hospital, and he could hear Aberdeen four or five kilometres away. He could hear the, these powerful boats taking off. And a bit of noise of firing and so on. So, but that was a, that was a successful escape of the MTBs, and he, the realization hit him. He was alone, and he was a prisoner of war. So he's lying there in hospital. He's got a shrapnel injury. Yes, he was very badly wounded, and he's recovering. So he was. He, he heard them going late in the night. Uh, the, the boats just taking off, and that was it. He was. So these are the remaining motor torpedo boats with, that were part of a quite a big escape story. Uh, but so this is the 25th of December, 1941. It, it is, and so what happens is that he he gets. I mean, I, the, the way that I read the book and the story is that he gets he gets blown up in the Aberdeen Channel by direct gunfire from Deepwater Bay, very accurate gunning, and he has this awful injury in his right leg, and he goes to Queen Mary Hospital on the 23rd, and then they have to be moved because there's too many people in the Queen Mary Hospital, and they move him to a temporary ward in the university, but they have to go by road, and their ambulance is being bombed, and that itself is a really hazardous journey. But somehow he manages to get to the university, and he's there, and... And then on the 25th morning, a nurse comes to him and tells him that the, the surrender has happened, which is a great moment of tragedy for him. And later in that day, he hears these rumbling and then the very distinctive sounds of this reverberating engines from Aberdeen, which were the five remaining MTBs from his squad leaving Hong Kong. And when, when you got five of them, five of them taking off at full speed, well, they would make a terrible noise. Ralph Goodwin was 38 when he joined the second motor torpedo boat flotilla in Hong Kong in September 1941. He then gets injured during the Battle of Hong Kong. He has a shrapnel wound in his leg. So he's in Queen Mary Hospital, as you say, when, when you describe how he hears this rumble of these remaining motor torpedo boats that are heading out of Aberdeen Harbour. And we're going to go on to his escape story uh, in a few moments, but tell me about what's happening with those motor torpedo boats down in Aberdeen. Yes, these boats took off at speed. They managed to escape quite safely and got right across Mers Bay to a point near the coast of China where they could scuttle the boats, which they did. And I think there was a, a, a tugboat with them also, another Royal Navy tugboat. And they had a bit of special cargo on board. Oh, they had a, an admiral who had a wooden leg, and that, that wooden leg was, was supposedly stuffed full of money and so forth, a handy passenger to have. They got him safely across there too. And then that, that group, of course, went ashore and they walked safely through into China and all of them escaped. 
So, poor Ralph Goodwin has been blown up in the Aberdeen Channel on MTB number 10 on December the 23rd, 1941, and he's wounded with a jagged steel splinter that's passed through his thigh. So he's stuck at Queen Mary Hospital. The surrender has been announced. His comrades have all headed off on the motor torpedo boats. Uh, Ralph Goodwin is up in the hospital, and then what happens to him? Yes, well, he stayed there until he was fit enough to be moved to a prisoner of war camp, and he moved to two or three prison war camps basically on Hong Kong Island and then across to one in Kowloon and so on, but eventually arrived at Sham Shui Po. After about two and a half years there, he was in Sham Shui Po camp and there was a stretch of water he knew he could swim and across there about a kilometre and then up into the hills and over. His intention was to get to Sha Tin, jump in the water again, then swim right across Murs Bay. Describe to me how he manages to leave the Sham Shui Po camp. I mean, how does he see his opportunity? Ah, well, he'd been w- watching carefully, but he realised this is the night for him because complete darkness and rain. And he's staying in the old barracks? Ah, uh, there were some uh, barracks that have been built there some, some time. So he's in bunk beds with other yeah, people? They, uh, yes. I think it was a British military camp before the war, but it was a prisoner of war camp there. So they were pretty close together, and he had to be very careful getting up from under his mosquito net, get all his gear ready, and then quietly tiptoe out the door, and away he went. But, but the first obstacle was to go up a pole, which he'd selected carefully, walking on the insulators to get over... Insulators? Yes, the insulators were there because at the top it had a roll of uh, wire netting, of course, and, and up it were these wires which were electrified. And he went over the barbed wire and he fell down on his back on the other side, on the outside the fence. So then he had to go over and get under another electrified... He went underneath an electrified fence and then he was out. And that was by a seawall. Then down the seawall, which he did with difficulty, into the water and swimming, of course, across the bay. The pack floated buoyantly, and when it had floated back clear of my feet, I fastened the rope round my neck and started to swim. Brilliant phosphorus marked every movement with a trail of fire that made me proceed with care when passing close to the anchored vessels. When viewed from the camp in daylight, it did not seem to be far across the bay, but it seemed to be a long way then, with nothing but stormy night all about. Intense blackness hid the shore, and there was nothing to indicate my progress save junks that, as they swung towards me in the eddying squalls, seemed bent on my destruction. The wind had its advantages, for besides covering my noise, by swimming almost at right angles to its direction, I was able to keep to my course. My sense of time had gone completely, and I had no idea how long it took me to cover the half-mile to shore. At last, my foot touched bottom, and I stood up to wade out on what looked like the beach, Fifty yards away, a small sampan was high and dry, a small lamp burning beneath its matting cover. Nothing else could be distinguished. So from Shamshu Po, what's the body of water that he actually swims across initially? Uh, Shamshu Po, it's just an, in, an inlet near Lychikok, yes. yes. In fact, I, I maintain where he came ashore is probably somewhere about where Lychikok MTR station is nowadays. On day two of the walk, he threw away everything that he didn't need. Anything that was going to weigh him down, he decided he would walk to the border and oh, into China and uh, take it from there. In the book, he has some very, very narrow escapes. In fact, it's an amazing book. He admits that he survived the warps mainly through good luck. He was getting weaker and weaker. His health was suffering. His eyesight, was he didn't realise it, but he, he was losing his sight because the diet he was on, he was getting very, very 
and, and Barry, Barry takes your eyesight away from you. And yeah, he describes how he's, his sight is starting to go, his sense of vision, and also swelling in the legs and just generally so debilitated. Yes, uh, he was quite a weak man when he finally got through and did meet up with, fortunately, friendly locals over, over the yes. border. And uh, they helped him on from there. So what does he describe when he's coming through? So he's gone from Shamshipo and, and up. And so how does he describe? He's basically trying. I mean, I can't imagine that you'd be sleeping much during the day either. You'd be on alert all the time, wouldn't you? How exhausting. Can you tell me a bit about his route going up? Uh, yes, well, he decided he would walk along the road at night as, as much as possible because that, then he knew where he was going in the right direction. Because um, he had no compass, nothing. No, he didn't have a compass. Apparently, he had a very rough map, which I think he had drawn by hand because it was a, a very sketchy map, giving him an idea where the road went. And he managed to keep a diary of all, everything, uh, even during his time in the prison war camp. He kept a diary somehow. And during the walk, he, he noted everything down. And he got all that information out with him. When he finally got back to New Zealand, it was there. So, uh, and years later, of course, he had to transcribe all that into the written word. And his written word is excellent. I mean, he, he tells a very good story. His, uh, the way he feels... What's happening to him, he describes it excellently. And he also describes the scenery. You would, you'd think that somebody in that situation just wouldn't notice that, that the dawn came up and, and it was so beautiful. And it was like a, a scene from a Turner painting. That was possibly the only morning having, on the 10 days it takes him to get across to the China border, it is pouring with rain. And it's relentless rain, one. And two, it is, it's, he escapes during a storm. And a typhoon. A, and a typhoon, and it's all black. It's pitch black. So all his walking through these hazardous hills is in blackness and pouring rain. So given the conditions, suddenly there's this absolutely beautiful sunrise, and as, as Gordon describes, this Turner-esque view at dawn, which is beautiful. What we've got to also bear in mind with Ralph Goodwin is he's only come here two months before, so in September really, uh, two to three months before the outbreak of war here. So he really hasn't had a chance. It's not a man who's been living here for years going hiking. He hasn't really yeah. had much of an opportunity to get the topography of Hong Kong. That was the thing. He knew the details. He knew the shoreline, of course, Hong Kong Harbour. And it wasn't until he got up on a hill and he was able to look down. Finally, the clouds cleared and there were some stars up above apparently and he could look down and he realised he was looking down on a bay of water and it could not possibly be anything other than, say, Gin Drinker's Bay. Um, I, I give it that name, but that's what he would be looking at. And he, he'd he gone far too west, so he had to turn somehow and make his way eastwards. He's going in the wrong direction. There's so many pressures on him. I mean, basically, he's walking along in the dark, often in pouring rain. You've got to watch out, obviously, for Japanese soldiers along the way or people that might betray him. He's a Caucasian walking along in the New Territories. So you've got all of that, plus he's debilitated anyway, and he's also got to work out his geography. So it must have been so discouraging to actually find that you're miles off the beaten track. Yes, uh, he, he sorted that one out, thank goodness, and he, he managed to keep up. He heard people around him often all the time, and he hid up. He was hiding every day, of course. He had some interesting experiences at night with fireflies. 
Ah, the Firefly stories. The, the, the Fireflies, yes. He had three experiences with Fireflies. The first one, he... he so Fireflies? Fireflies, yes. So the ones that li light up at night? They, 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 <laughs> they, they light up, and, and he, he was in the area which still has Fireflies today, near Taipo. And he was looking for somewhere where he could go and get some water, and he saw these Fireflies heading down a little track, and he, he thought he could hear water, so he followed them, and sure enough, they led him to a, a beautiful pool of fresh water, so he was able to get his water. So this is his escape in July 1944. No compass, just his own wits and some bully beef as he heads out of Shamshi Post. So what would have happened to him had he been caught? He, he wouldn't last very long. He would have been executed probably immediately. Here we've got some maps from that journey. What I understand, I've read the book and um, I enjoyed it. It's, it's an incredible story of courage. But when he was writing the book, which would have been R46, he used maps to retrace his escape. And so he has a collection of maps, which we would call the Goodwin Map Collection. Three or four of these maps are with notations and some show his escape route where he crosses the new territories but in a very uh, circuitous way because he's he's traveling through the night and he has to escape the obvious roads and things so so the maps show how he plotted this escape what i find very interesting about this collection of maps. I believe that Gordon plans at some point to give some of these to a military museum in Auckland. But what I find really interesting is, is, is how he accumulated them. And we have a story about that, which we were just discussing this morning, where after he had escaped and got back to New Zealand, after three months, he joins MI9 in Australia, which is a military intelligence outfit. And I think it's probably at that time he gathers maps a certain number of these maps and possibly the ones that he uses and I think they were a wartime issue and they were for your eyes only type maps so they're really scarce in their own right plus his escape story he's doing his research with them so they're fascinating. The escape of Ralph Goodwin from Shamshupo camp in July 1944. My thanks to Gordon Anderson. Goodwin would travel up through the mainland into free China and then be flown over the hump to India where he met Lord Mountbatten who was the Supreme Allied Commander, Southeast Asia Command at the time. Goodwin's maps are part of a bigger exhibition at What is Fine Art, which includes a map from 1509 in Goa and the route of the world's first aircraft carrier. And I'll return to Jonathan for the last section of today's programme. On to Christmas tales and a Christmas war escape, as I join David Bellis of Hong Kong history website guulo.com for some seasonal photos. Yes, I brought along a selection of Christmas photos from the website. One of the nice things as the website's grown is we've got collections of things about things. So if you type in Gulo Christmas photos into Google, the first result will be photos tagged Christmas, and that's what we're looking at today. The photos cover pretty much 100 years. So the oldest one is this one from 1900, and it's a pretty traditional scene. It's a Christmas tree all decorated got a bit of a nativity feel about it. There's a lady with a group of little girls squatted down in front of the tree there. But if you look closely, you see they've all got their eyes closed. And if you look at the title here, you're the lady to read this one to us. Oh, Untum Weihnachtsbaum in Blindenheim in Hong Kong. So under the Christmas tree at the Home for the Blind in Hong Kong. Yeah, so this was the Blind Girls' Orphanage, which was in Kowloon, sort of halfway between Hong Ham and Kowloon City. And so this missionary group from Germany 
were looking after them. And I think this card would be something they'd send back to donors back in Germany. It would be a way of trying to drum up more funds. So this is part of the Home for the Blind, and that looks as if it's actually in a church. Probably within the within the building. Or a chapel, yeah. yeah. And I've definitely got Christmas tree jealousy there. That's an enormous natural Christmas tree. And, of course, yes. that's, that's like gold in Hong Kong this year. The next few are also... Christmas cards. So from the early 20th century, everything we're looking at is sort of commercially produced. And these ones don't have a Christmas theme at all. We've got one of the Peak Hotel. We've got one of a couple of trams in Causeway Bay <laughs> and one of a lady carrying a basket. She was one of the ladies that trekked up and down the peak every day carrying all the, the things that the peak dwellers needed. So uh, these early ones were all about, look at me, I'm in Hong Kong, isn't life here so strange? You know, let me have a little bragging to you people back in Britain or wherever I'm writing to. That's the first section. Then we come down and we get a photo, not commercially produced, and it's an amazing photo. It's taken on Christmas Day 1941, which I'm sure all listeners will know the importance of that. So it's just before the surrender. And it's a photo that comes from Barbara Anslow, the late Barbara Anslow. And in her diary, she mentions the events. She says, Mr. Bendel took photos outside the Colonial Secretariat office tunnel where we were working in the morning of Mr. Garton, Mr. Skinner and me. And then in brackets, she wrote a little note afterwards. These photos were developed and printed post-war and one of them still exists. So this incredibly survived the events of, of Christmas Day, the surrender, all through that long internment. Goodness knows how. And here we have it today. It's a wonderful photograph. You've got Barbara Anslow, very young there, in the middle there. She's just in her 20s. And you say that she was actually working in the tunnel. Yes, these are the air raid shelter tunnels that go in under the governor's house, governor's residence there. You can still see them today. The doors are into the hillside there. And so a lot of the secretaries and the general government office workers had moved into those tunnels to carry on their, their work. And I quite like the way that they're wearing their tin hats at a jaunty angle. Very jaunty. Jaunty is definitely the word, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> oh, good for them, because it was about to be very difficult times, but there's this rather positive photograph, and they must have known, obviously, what was coming up. But that's the surrender on the 25th of December 1941. So can you tell me who the other two gents were on the photograph? We get them mentioned in her diaries, and I think they were also in the sort of like public works department. They were other civil servants, so they'd have been doing their own work um, in that area that day. And did they go into Stanley Camp as well? They do. We, mm. we hear those names quite often in her diaries as, as time goes by. What a wonderful photograph. And it must have just stayed on a roll, carefully kept. Yes, treasured or, you know, tucked away in a pocket and somehow made it right through the war. So then, of course, we've got this gap. There's no photos because everyone's uh, stuck inside a, an internment camp or a prisoner of war camp. But we do get some mentions of Christmas in diaries. And it's almost all about food. Yes, I can imagine. They were just so hungry. So was it a lot of dreamy, what, what they used to have? Well, through the year it's dreamy, but here comes Christmas and wow, we've got food. You know, everything gets pulled out of the cupboards and all the stuff that people have been saving. So in 1942, still quite a lot of food around camp. People had uh, brought stuff in, were able to buy stuff, so it was quite a bit available. And, and Barbara writes about the events in great detail, so... Let's see here we start. After her first mass, she goes to mass in the morning and then has egg, bacon, tomatoes and loganberries. Next entry is uh, Mrs. Deacon coming along and giving us two packets of post-toasties. <laughs> then Tony came and gave us a tin of cheese and onions. 
And the, the last line of the of the diary for that day is, I have a stomachache and deserve it, which means great. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the sort of the peak of the camp Christmas experience, and it gets harder and harder as there's less and less food. So by 1944, we get a diary entry. I'm not sure where this, where this one came from. It says, from its last remaining stocks, the camp also gave us each a small loaf of real bread. The flour was pre-war and decidedly musty. Even the weevils in it had died of malnutrition. Oh, God. <laughs> so that's the, the state of things. We get one more little mention of Christmas from Barbara, and that's in 1945. She's back, back in England, and she's staying with relatives. We spent Christmas Day with the family at Gillingham, a table graced with a rare turkey, supplied for 39 shillings and threepence by the butcher. So everybody left all the hardships of Hong Kong, went back to, to Britain or wherever. And the ones who went back to Britain, I think after not very long were... I thinking this probably wasn't as great as it made out to be because you know, Britain was in a very tough state at the time and rationing was going on. So for them to have a turkey was quite a, a special, special thing. So back to our photos on Gulo. And in 1950 here, we've got a couple of advertisements, one for Watson's and one from Dairy Farm and no signs of rationing here. Turkeys, geese, ducks, chickens, <laughs> hams, plum puddings, mince pies, crackers, nuts, gorgonzola and stilton, all available from the dairy farm. So, and that would have been over at Pogfalam? This would have been the, the shop in Central, I guess. Oh, the, right, uh, OK. You know, perhaps with the Fringe Club up, up there. So the, the tables were turned. The people here in, in Hong Kong were having a much better time of it. So that's the dairy farm Christmas advert in 1950. Now we scroll down a bit more. And everything changes, and the 50s are quite a golden era for, for Gulo because you had this great influx of national servicemen, young, young men here, and photography was the, the fashionable hobby of the day. So we get lots and lots of photos from them. All black and white, of course, but you know some of them are good photographers, get all sorts of different scenes. So the next few are all about the national servicemen having their Christmas Day dinners, and we've got a couple here, Christmas Revels. It's all about having fancy dress. And, of course, if there's a party like this, the British gentleman will always have a desire to dress up as a pantomime dame, which I've got no idea what the locals thought of, but yeah. we always it, get a few of these. Do you think that dressing up is a quintessentially British thing? I was thinking about this before I came over, and then I did think, well, there is Chinese opera. Yes. Where the, uh, you know, it's usually the men... And the women, the roles there are quite fluid, so perhaps there was a bit more understanding than I'm, I'm giving them credit for. But some great costumes here, quite funny to look at. And again, it's all about the food, and apart from the food, the beer. So I think all these photos always have a, everyone clutching a bottle of beer. It? <laughs> so this is at Sham Shui Po yeah. in 1953, and it's a Royal Signals 24 Troop Christmas. So that's a big group photo in uniform there. Now here's a curiosity. It's from 1958. I think it came from... The RAF, this one, and it's a teleprinter Christmas greeting. So an early example of digital art. So someone has painstakingly worked out how to re reproduce a picture of the Madonna, in this case, with a, a young Christ, all done on a, a very old-fashioned teleprinter, one of those clackety-clackety, you know, so using like a, a full stop for a little bit of darkness and a, and a capital A for a bit more darkness, and they've done a pretty good job. Can you do your teleprinter sound again? <laughs> clackety-clackety. <laughs> And a Santa here. Here we go, another one. That was clever. Yeah, a lot of patience. 1959. So, as you say, someone had way too much free time on their hands. <laughs> right, into the 1960s, colour. That's the first big change. And we're looking at Christmas decorations. And oh, yes. The HSBC oh, pops yes. up quite so, often. So, when did those sort of light decor on, on buildings start then? 
around now, as far as I can tell. I mean, these are the earliest ones we've, we've got anyway. <laughs> and it's something like maybe a three-year-old would have sketched out. Yes. It's very, very simple. But, uh, yes, you know, you're coming out of a time of hardship, I guess. You know, it was a sign things were moving forward and people would take this as very positive. The thing I always like with these old ones is, is you look at the Christmas one and you try and imagine what it's going to turn into for Chinese New Year. You know, yeah, yeah. Santa's going to become a, 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 a sort of a, a Chinese emperor-y looking person. <laughs> Save a bit of cash. Save it on, on, the, on the reworking, yes. The first ones are, as I say, HSBC seems to pop up as a regular and it sort of slowly starts spreading out into other parts of Central. And then we have another jump and we've got a bunch from the 80s, by which time it's, it's kind of all over the place. Yes. And so it's another curious little observation of, of how times changed, that back in the 1900s, Christmas was very much a European thing. And it was only the expats here celebrating it. It was very localised to, what, 1% or 2% of Hong Kong. But if you look at it today, you know, Christmas is, is everywhere, isn't it? And everyone takes part, whether you follow the religious side or not, of it has certainly become a, a, a part of Hong Kong life at Christmas. Guolo.com not only provides tens of thousands of pages of Hong Kong history, also it provides a day-by-day account from some of the prisoners of war. So this year marks the 80th anniversary, but you've got about 40 accounts that good friends of Guolo.com have helped you to type up and and put in that we can access as a day-by-day account. You can also be emailed those accounts or you can just look them up on the Gulo.com site. So if you, for example, wanted to look at this year, what's been going up for 80 years ago, then just type into Google, Gulo and 80 years ago, and uh, you'll be able to get those prisoner of war accounts up. So we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, David, right. uh, and also Colin McEwen, who was, uh, he was, a, was he a physical education instructor? Or yes, that's a, right. He's, he's the school inspector for physical education. So there's a little note about him here, written by one of his colleagues, had a robust figure. He could easily <laughs> beat two of his equals in a game of wrestling, handled a Thompson submachine gun as if it were his toy. He's Superman! He really is. <laughs> it's one of the new diaries we've, we're putting on this year, and it's a, it's a really fascinating one to read through as, you, as you're doing the work, because he was in something called Z-Force. So he wasn't officially with the armed services. Z-Force was part of the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, something like that they were called. And they were going to work behind enemy lines, doing sabotage, uh, so a very specialised and tight group. But the events of the war in Hong Kong, it all happened much quicker than anyone expected. And so instead of having lots of time for them to be working behind enemy lines, they were quickly back to Hong Kong Island. They were given a couple of tasks to do. One of them, Colin describes, was going out to put a mine on a, a hull of a, a wrecked ship in the harbour to deny that to the Japanese. One of the darker incidents is where they take out a group of uh, fifth columnists and, and shoot them in central and leave them with placards as a, a way of warning off others. And, and thinking about it, those fifth columnists were doing pretty much exactly what Colin was being trained to do. But, you know, it was just uh, which side of the, the war you were on. Later on, he gets moved down to Aberdeen. So here's a few extracts. December 20th. He writes, in addition, orders now came to move to Aberdeen the following morning, ready to move to Sartau Kot. Now, Sartau Kot, of course, is you know, just up on the border. So I think by this point, they could see the end was coming and they were preparing to go even further behind enemy lines up into, uh, up into China and hopefully free China. December 21, my last sensation was one of complete comfort as I sank off to sleep in one of their super beds. Definitely the Navy had something. So he gets quite enamoured with, with Navy life over the next two or three days. So he's spending these days with the, um, the Navy down in Aberdeen. 
December 22, the news came that the whole flotilla, or rather what was left of it, was coming on our expedition. So now it's a much bigger group that's going up to China. And, of course, one of the key members of that group was going to be the, the Chinese Admiral Chan Chak. December 24th, our vocabulary is now increasing and we have learned to use the expressions Pongo, Matlow and Penny with accuracy. <laughs> Meaning what? Well, I've looked them up. <laughs> Pongo is what soldiers call men in the army. Matlow is what sailors call themselves. And Penny, I couldn't find out. So perhaps a listener can, uh, can explain that oh, one okay. to us. This diary, you know, is a wonderful addition to Gulo.com and provides the reader with an account as Hong Kong is falling. The surrender is on the 25th of December. And out in Aberdeen, you have these motor torpedo boats, incredibly loud, getting ready to move. And uh, Colin McEwen is part of that. And uh, it's quite a, an exciting escape it's out thrilling, of Aberdeen. really, yes. So they, they sail out of the harbour and they sail right around and up to Dongping Chow, the very northeast corner of what was Hong Kong. And there they end up sinking their boats and going ashore, uh, meeting the guerrillas. And of course, having an Admiral Chan Chak with them is their, their ticket to cooperation. And they march to the north, the guerrillas lead the way. And on December the 29th, they arrive in Wai Chow in, in Free China. So they have uh, made their way to safety. Yeah, extraordinary, because, I mean, Admiral Chan Chak, he had a wooden leg, and uh, now there's various stories about whether that leg was full of gold, um, but uh, either way, hugely influential man needed to get out of, of Hong Kong. And so you have them, yes, off on the motor torpedo boat, then they go and scuttle them, and uh, up through China, travelling by night, staying in temples, and uh, also carrying Admiral Chan Chak in a sedan chair. Yes, I think several of the party ended up in sedan chairs. Earlier on, he writes about the preparations and his worries because he says, oh, you know, all these men that we're dealing with are sailors. And as a sailor, you never walk. And now all of a sudden, they were going to have to be walking these long distances every day. And he was trying to explain them to them that 50 pounds in a pack might not seem heavy now. But two hours later, after your third hill, you'd have a different uh, a view of it altogether. So we're now going to do another set of squats. <laughs> Christmas Day saw another perfect Hong Kong winter day with warm sunshine and, sheltered as we were by Apley Jiao, there was no wind. We were indeed so sheltered that in the afternoon we managed to have a swim, albeit in somewhat oily water still, as the chief petty officer remarked, it'd keep the mosquitoes away. Early in the afternoon rumours of a truce flag at Aberdeen started, but stopped as quickly. It was for us the most boring day of the war. There was bombing and shelling going on over the hill, but as far as we were concerned... We might as well have been out of the war completely. So bored were we indeed that we welcomed a floating barge as a target for Bren and Tommy Gun, in which the crew had recently received instruction. The trench mortar fire kept on intermittently, each one sounding, as Collingwood said, like a door slamming, a very apt description. In the margin here there's a note, 315, surrender. Everyone was thoroughly browned off, and even the double issue of rum didn't help. Later in the afternoon, however, the machine gun fire seemed closer, and at 5pm the signal came, ready. What was on now? Were we going, or was there some job on? Still, it was welcome, as evidently there was something doing. Soon after, Number 10 came alongside with the news that Hong Kong had surrendered, and that we were off. During this parley, figures appeared on the skyline, and Leg at once grabbed his Lewis and started in. Luckily, as it turned out afterwards, my Bren had no magazine and by the time it was fitted, orders not to fire were given. Evidently they were friends, but 
As to their identity, we were to remain in ignorance, as we were ordered to Telegraph Bay to contact the other three boats. As fate would have it, this was the very time our engines would not start, and only after towing did they roar into life. As soon as we started across the entrance to Aberdeen, doors started slamming and up went a spout of water about 50 yards off our port bow. Taking the first available cover where I could be out of the way of the crew, I found myself behind a depth charge, with my Bren peeping coyly over. Following that, doors kept slamming, but each successive spout of water dropped further astern, and thanks to the speed of our craft, we were soon over and round the point, where we rendezvoused with the other two, with their crews gorged on a Christmas dinner of chicken and cream, etc. The dairy farm was just above them. Obviously, we couldn't move until dusk. We settled down to waiting. Dusk came, still no signal. Seven o'clock, 7.30, and only at eight, after what seemed hours of suspense, we received orders to join the others. Out we came into one of the most beautiful evenings I've ever seen in Hong Kong. To the west over Lama, there was still a purplish afterglow. The sky was steely clear, with odd stars coming out, and on the starboard, Lantau loomed up, a dark purple mass with pinpricks of light at odd intervals. Behind us, a building at Pot Fulham was madly alight with masses of deep smoke showing up against the sky, and beyond farther flames could be seen. There was a curious feeling of tragedy aboard. Hong Kong had fallen. Only seventeen days, and here we were, off on a trip to China. For us, at least, there was the selfish satisfaction of knowing that there would be no concentration camps. The flotilla complete, we set off, and at every angle up to Stanley fires could be seen. At that stage, the night was by no means perfect, the moon throwing a path of glittering light, a queer crazy paving of sparkles over our courses. By degrees, however, it darkened, and in the peculiar half-light, it was difficult to discern the boat ahead apart from its phosphorescent light. Only one incident worth recording occurred, when, well on the starboard bow, a searchlight was seen, possibly some Japanese destroyer. Anyway, it didn't pick us up, and in the ever-gathering darkness, on we went, till off Ping Jiao we stopped. Mike, Tai and I, with Henry Sue, went ashore for any news of any possible Japanese movements in the area and, by a stroke of luck, Mike and Henry contacted the local guerrilla leader. Mention of Admiral Chan's name speeded up matters, and soon we'd moved across to Nam O, where we disembarked after some hours of packing and stripping the boat of all available gear. During this period of hurry and rush, the most difficult task of all was to prevent the guerrillas we seemed to have no idea of the old law of mine and thine, from grabbing all and sundry. Anything we didn't want was theirs, but this did not deter them from having a smack at any available articles, especially arms. Out of all this apparent flurry, junks appeared. Kit disappeared aboard them, and the work of scuttling the MTBs was carried out. This proved no easy task, and we had to resort to axes. Even as it was, when we left they showed no signs of sinking fast. Still, it was dawn now, and 6.15 saw the last party aboard a very silent launch, vaguely familiar from sailing days as one of the many craft which used to slip out of Hong Kong at dusk. You've now got 40 accounts on ongulo.com. When you get a personal account like this, like Colin McEwen, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting history. It's the person who was there. Mm. But from when you started doing this, how does it make you feel, you know, these different characters, all these different people and uh, their written accounts? We've talked before about the fact that 
people wrote more in those days and I think it should encourage us all to, to carry on with writing a journal. Mine gets smaller and smaller. <laughs> I, I laugh at home. I've got these journals that all peter out at the end of January and quick burst out of guilt in April and mine are now getting smaller or maybe just becoming computer entries. But generally, yes, you have these different journals. But when you look at something like Colin McEwan, when you're reading through, how does it make you feel? I think there's two things that I, that I look forward to when I get a new diary. One is getting a fresh view on events. So you get a, a person's, hopefully, first-hand experience. And so things that you've heard just mentioned sort of tangentially in the past, you suddenly get the full story of, and that's, that's fantastic. And the other part of the diary project has been to build up a, a sort of list of the characters who are involved. So as I work through a page, every time I find a name, I will make a page for them, their own page on Gulo, and link the two together. So it gets easier as time goes by, you, you get a name again and you can, oh, OK, that's that same person. And quite often we'll, we'll have a family member who's been searching on the internet who sees, oh, that was you know, my uncle or my grandfather, and they'll come in and fill in a bit more to it. So it all helps to, everything's interlinked and it all helps to, to flesh out this story of, of Hong Kong's past that we're building. What are you doing for Christmas? Christmas at home with uh, friends and family, so can't beat that. <laughs> you got a tree? We do have a tree. It's the best, uh, well, it's the same tree we've had for many years, goes back in its box at the end of Christmas. <laughs> Japan home still, so. <laughs> One of those, yes. <laughs> and we will be having a turkey. We won't, we won't be... Uh, won't be 39 shillings and threepence, but we will be having a turkey. <laughs> Thank you very much, David, for just coming in. Just uh, we're, we're recording this just a couple of days before Christmas, but uh, do have a good one. Thank you. Always a pleasure. David Bennis there, who has some very nice radio reading skills, I note, so I might need to prevail on those again. There, with the diary of Colin McEwan. For the final part of today's programme, I'm returning to What is Fine Art for a map from the 16th century, the route of an early prototype aircraft carrier, and a top-secret map shared by America and nationalist China when the post-war future of Hong Kong hung in the balance. We have an exhibition. It's our 33rd annual Mapping of Asia. At this venue? At this venue, yes. We've had many different thematic shows, but each year we do a cartographic show, and that is called the Mapping of Asia. And this year, what we tend to do each year is we change what we include in the show. And so with this particular exhibition, we are having fine antique maps from the 16th to the 20th century, including a collection of city plans of Canton, Guangzhou, Hong Kong and Shanghai. So we, we've had to look at a bit of the, the Hong Kong. There's a whole Hong Kong wall there with, with maps of Hong Kong and, and also city plans of Hong Kong. And we have another wall with Shanghai, really beautiful city plan. These, these are um, standalone maps that were separately published, so they're really quite scarce. We do have one or two maps that come from guidebooks. So there are all these different types of maps, particularly city plans. Some of them are done for commercial purposes. Some of them are done for government purposes. And also this time we have some Chinese uh, city plans, which is quite nice to see those, and ones that were made in Hong Kong. 16th century, so that's the 1500s. Well, the, the 16th century, we start the exhibition with a Brown and Hogenberg map of Goa and Dew, and, and those are cities in western India, and they were the first cities that were depicted in the first atlas or book on cities 
that was published in Europe by Brown and, and Hogenberg. I think it was between 1572 and around 1600. It took a number of years, and all cities of the world, but very few other than Europe, were depicted because they didn't really know about them. So the one of Goa, which is at the beginning, has, shows Goa in 1509, so that's just after the Portuguese had arrived. So it's fairly new information. How fascinating. So your first map dates back to 1509. And what's the, what's the most recent map in your collection, in your exhibition here? The most recent one is A Guide to Hong Kong by courtesy of the Mandarin Hotel, <laughs> which was published in 1965 or thereabouts. And uh, it's, it's well-worn and quite stained, considering what good condition the very early maps are. And this is really not in great condition. But used by tourists. Uh, yeah, and it's what we call, it's a piece of ephemera, really. Yes. But it's quite good fun because, you know, the Mandarin now is the grand old lady of Hong Kong and is one of our great hotels. So it's rather nice to have that. And it's the only time I've had it. And uh, I'm sure most of them would have been thrown away, you know. Just quickly, what's this HMS Argus one? So this is HMS Argus. I'll tell you what this is. I put it in because it, it's another type of map. This is a photograph. So what happens is one of the crew members of HMS Argus, who comes on the tour to the Far East, as it would have been called then, he would draw in pen and ink this map to show the route. And underneath he types in the date they were there and when they arrived and when they left and there's also a portrait, and this is a very, very early aircraft carrier where they converted a cruise liner into an aircraft carrier, and this is 1928. So it's a very unusual, one of the first aircraft carriers, and it shows its route from England out through the Mediterranean, through the Suez, and then to India, and then across to Singapore, and then up to Hong Kong, and then it's on the China station for a while. So the idea behind this was that Whoever drew it then took various photographs so each of the crew could have that as a memento. Oh, I see. So it's quite, it, I mean, it would be quite unusual. So, so HMS Argus. It, it, was, it was an aircraft carrier. It was one of the earliest prototype uh, aircraft carriers oh. where they converted a cruise ship and oh. put this platform on. And it's, it's quite an ugly sort of thing. <laughs> but it was, and I think that most of the aeroplanes were made out of balsa wood and blew over. But I mean, you know, it's very, <laughs> it was very early days for that type of technology. And I, I, I think there's a, a story behind. So 19, the ship 1928. 1928, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I so. didn't even know they had aircraft carriers in. Well, it was a prototype. It was right yeah. at the beginning. So, yeah. yeah, there's a book in that one photograph, you know. <laughs> this wall we put together of Hong Kong material was mainly Second World War because of the timing of this December 80 years ago. But the last map from the wartime that we have is a US Army map of Victoria. That's quite interesting. It's just called Victoria, Hong Kong. And it lovely colours. But basically, it's Victoria Harbour, Kowloon, and Hong Kong. And then the roads are all named, and, this, and it's a very beautiful map with lots of detail. But I have to tell you that it was produced just at the very end of the Second World War, and it's based on a British map, GSGS 3890, um, produced in 1945. This is a top-secret map, so you, you might have to edit this. On it, in, <laughs> in, to edit yes, in pink, <laughs> in pink, can I read? Go on. Okay. The contents of this map must not be discussed with or shown to representatives or nationals of any power except official representatives of the United States and Chinese nationalist governments. Direct reproductions or any complete or partial copy made from these maps by any means, as well as compilations at scales larger than 1 to 250,000, are subject to the same restrictions that apply to the original material. 
Oh, Jonathan, this is, of course, a completely different story. It's, it's basically America, nationalist government, the Kuomintang. Yes. Is this don't tell the British? And, and we're going to get in and don't let them back in. <laughs> and then that ties in with Ralph Goodwin because he's on the first ship that comes in from Subic Bay, military intelligence. So we have the British military intelligence and then we have the American. I thought that might add a little bit of colour. Absolutely. No, this is yeah, Don't tell the British. Absolutely. <laughs> this map represents that. It is a lovely map. It's loads of detail. Yeah. Yes, all the topography. Yeah. yeah, all the streets and the buildings done in this sort of delicate light pink, isn't it? Showing all the streets of, of Central and Wan Chai and showing Wan Chai Reclamation and Causeway Bay and, and in Kowloon. It, it's a really good map. It's a really good city plan as well as a map. I think the geopolitical history of that time is fascinating. You know how, uh, you know, we, we won't stop there today, but just how various elements here uh, make sure that the flag is raised while Admiral Harcourt and his fleet are uh, steaming their way over. But meanwhile, the Americans are saying, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. As it turned out, Admiral Harcourt's fleet steamed in and Hong Kong continued as a British colony until 1997, but it was by no means guaranteed. And then later on I have a, a map which is a, a serviceman's guide. So you have a serviceman's guide which was done, you know, for, for the American fleet telling them in the 1950s, telling them, you know, to be very careful of pickpockets, don't go here, don't go there, city plan of Hong Kong. And then you have another one which is called the Seafarer's Guide, and they actually copied it from the Americans, and that was, that was the British one. Well, the, but, sea, the Seafarer's Guide, is that all the Wan Chai hangouts? Well, it was, it was, it was basically the merchant, merchant, merchant marine, so yes, and, and, so, and the, the other one was completely the Wan Chai hangouts for the American <laughs> Navy in the 50s, so yeah. Oh, brilliant. So it's, it's all these different stories yes. that maps can tell. Jonathan, yeah. thank you so much no, for today. My, my thanks to Gordon Anderson, Jonathan Wattis and David Bellis. So if you'd like to see those Christmas photographs on Grulo, then just type in the words photos tagged Christmas and Grulo into Google and they'll come up. And at Wattis Fine Art, the Second World War maps and the escape of Ralph Goodwin can be seen at the 33rd Annual Mapping of Asia exhibition, which is on until Saturday, January the 8th. You can also see these details on the Hong Kong Heritage on Radio 3 Facebook page. Thanks for listening throughout this year. Have a good restful holiday time and join me next week for the first Hong Kong Heritage of the New Year. <laughs>